Happy New Year, church. It's good to know that there's only 51 more weeks until we're right back at a new year. This morning, we've sung a lot about a Christ who is an intercessor, who is a high priest, who intercedes for us before the Father. And, you know, sometimes that may not have been the case for us. I'm remembering one incident in my story where um, one of my wife's teachers found out that we were engaged and was trying to talk her out of it. Sometimes you don't always have people in your corner. 28 years later, it's been happily ever after, though. Um, Actually, you can hear the whole story later if you'd like. But here we are. We're not going to talk about people who are making accusations against us this morning, people who are concerned about the decisions we may be making. We're going to hear from God's Word in John chapter 17 about a high priest who's praying not only for those who are in his presence, but for those who are to come, those who will believe in his word based on the testimony of the apostles. That's us. And so whether you feel like you've been loved by someone before or not, know that today as you are here, it is actually a fulfillment of God's prayers being answered. Jesus prayed that there would be people who would come to faith in him based on the testimony of the disciples. And here we are in this room gathered today some 2,000 years later. And why is that? I know, you grew up here at South Canyon. This is your church. Or you have a friend who told you to come here and invited you, and you came as a result of that. Let me just be clear. All those things may be true, but the bigger truth that holds all that up is the fact that Jesus prayed that you would be here and hear his word today. And by the fact that you're here, those prayers are being answered. If you've uh, opened your copy of the scriptures, join me in John 17 this morning. We're going to read through the passage. You'll find it on page 903 in the Blue Bibles, which if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that as a New Year's gift from South Canyon. We'd encourage you to read it. There we go. Encourage you to read that and um, find questions are answered in the scriptures that come from God's word, questions about life, meaning, purpose, um, all that uh, pertains to life and godliness is found in his word. And so we make a lot of it here at this church because we believe that it is the truth revealed to us from God. And so page uh, 903 in those Bibles, please follow along as I read now from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now... 
They know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word and may he write these truths upon all our hearts. Lord, we simply ask that you would continue to speak to us. May we understand this high priestly prayer and may it Build faith, yea, even produce faith in those who are here and hearing it this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you remember Matthew's gospel, there was a point in chapter 6 where the disciples asked Jesus, hey, can you teach us to pray? We see you always going off in the mornings, early hours, late at night, and you're going in the hills away by yourself to pray. Can you teach us how to pray? And so Jesus does in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. And some have turned that into what's called the Lord's Prayer. And it's, his words are often quoted as a stand-alone prayer instead of the way that Jesus intended it to be. His words do not tell us what to say, 
But Jesus provided an example of how to pray in that passage. It functions as a guide or a structure that should inform how we pray. And so as we look at this lengthy prayer of Jesus here in John 17, some 26 verses long, we're not being told how to pray. Don't hear this as a a sermon or as Jesus telling you, here's the things you need to pray for and here's the things you don't ask for. That's not what this is about. In fact, what we see is this unique privilege we're given at how our Savior interacts with His own Father. This special discourse between the two of them. And we see there's a sweet communion that Jesus has with the Father. And we see that not only does Jesus love the Lord, but the Lord loves Him. And that God has a great love for us as Jesus' disciples. This concludes this large passage in John's Gospel here, the night before Jesus was going to be betrayed. He's about to leave the city limits and go into the garden where in the very next chapter, chapter 18 as we will see next week, he's going to be arrested. And then he is going to be tried overnight and throughout the night harassed. There's no due process of law. And then he is going to be sent to a cross. Why is Jesus praying these words here and now. This is something for us to consider this morning. And so what we're going to do is work through this with a series of questions. We see from chapters 13 through 17 that John has been making the case. Jesus is the obedient and dependent Son of God. And doesn't Jesus demonstrate that here in his prayer? Casting himself on God's mercy, not to deliver him, but to sustain him and to bring glory through what is about to happen. To preserve the faith of the disciples, even though Jesus would be sent to a cross. And they would think it's all a hoax. It's all for naught. But Jesus also came to reveal to us who the Father really is. And so when you see Jesus in the scriptures, you need to understand this is what our God, what our creator is really like. But then Jesus, having completed his work, announces he's about to return to the Father. And he's eager to have the glory restored once again. So, I'm going to give you four questions. And this is going to be the, this is going to be the order of how we work through this passage this morning. Um, four questions that we're going to answer from John 17. First question is, who does Jesus pray to? The second question is, who does Jesus pray for? The third question is, what does Jesus ask for? And the fourth question is, what do we learn about Jesus and ourselves? So I'm going to repeat those for you. If you're taking notes, it might help you to follow along. Who is Jesus praying to? Who is Jesus praying for? What is Jesus asking for? And what do we learn about him and ourselves? So let's look at that first question, who does Jesus pray to? We see right there in the beginning of verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words that connects us to chapter 16, he's on his way out of the upper room, he's conversing with the disciples about the fact of his crucifixion, the fact that he will leave them, but he will return. Their sorrow will be returned, uh, will turn to joy. And to know this, that the world will persecute them, and yet God has promised victory in Jesus and through Jesus. So, 
here is who Jesus is praying to in verse 4. It's his Father. We see that in verse 1, verse uh, 5, verse 11, and 24. And who is the Father? But verse 2 and 7 tells us he is the one with authority over all. Verse 3 tells us that this Father that Jesus is praying to is the one true God. And he is the sole possessor of eternal life. Jesus says also that the Father is the one who sent him from heaven to earth in verse 4 and whose word Jesus has been communicating his entire life here on earth, as we see in verses 7 and 8, 14 and 17. The Father is the one to whom Jesus is going back to in verses 11 and 13. He is the one uh, that Jesus is one with. I mean, there's this union between the Father and the Son, as we see in verses 21 through 23. And we see also that this Father that Jesus is praying to is not only sovereign over all, not only the one who sent Jesus, not only do they have a unique relationship, but the Father loves the Son, verse 23 and 24. And the Father and the Son, according to verse 24, are eternal. They exist before the world was created. The Father is righteous, we see in verse 26. And he loves those who believe in Jesus' name. You see, all this is showing us that what Jesus claims to be, who he claims to be, is not an angelic messenger sent from heaven to carry on. This isn't like Clarence in um, It's a Wonderful Life, who's trying to earn his wings. Jesus is the divine God. He is the Son of God, equal to and one with God in essence, in being, and preexistence. And here's Jesus declaring, acknowledging the fact that His Father is sovereign over all and the only true God. I mean, we might look over this very quickly. He uses the term Father, and we in our Christianese might just skip over that. But here's an argument that Jesus is making that there is a God who exists and there's only one. And Jesus is the, is the way of accessing, accessing that God. Jesus has been faithful to giving the Father's true word to those the Father has given him and they have received it. He says, in effect, Father, to know you is to have eternal life in verse 3. We're going to get to what that means here in a moment, but this is who Jesus is talking to. It's this eternal, sovereign, omnipotent, eternal, preexistent, all-encompassing God. And what does Jesus pray for? Or who does Jesus pray for? Here's the second question we're going to answer. Well, if you look at verses 1 through 5, Jesus begins by praying for himself. And that's not wrong. So it's, it's not wrong to pray for yourself. That's something that we can be assured of. But in the first five verses, Jesus is focused on praying to the Father for himself. And then as you look at verses 6 through 19, Jesus begins to expand to pray for all of his disciples who are around him, no doubt hearing his words. That's why John recorded this in such detail. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for those, not only these, but also for those who will believe in me 
through these guys' word. He's praying for future Christians. The disciples yet to come. And what does Jesus ask for these people? Himself and the current disciples and those to come. Well, look at verses 1 through 5. He prays simply, Lord, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Not so that the Son can be glorified in an end to itself, but so that the Son can then glorify you. Verse 1. Jesus' prayer This familiarity that he demonstrates with the Father is an assumed claim to divinity. If you think that Jesus was just a man, a prophet, a Jewish rabbi who was a great teacher and who stumbled upon some really good truths every once in a while, you need to read and understand John's gospel is all built around the statements that Jesus makes that he is eternal, preexistent, equal with the Father, and in fact, the Father's only representative. Jesus is claiming to be divine. The Old Testament tells us that God will not give His glory to another in Isaiah 42 and verse 8. And if we were to ask God to give us glory, it would be a sin. It would be presumptuous because we're not holy. We're not true. We're not righteous like God is. We're sinners. I mean, we may have started a New Year's revolution uh, resolution, but here it is on the seventh, and we've probably broken our own covenant, right? Although we bear His image, and we're made in the image of God according to Genesis 1, it's been marred by sin. Not so with Jesus, though. He possessed divine glory before creation, according to verse 5. And he has demonstrated his purity and his holiness throughout his entire earthly mission. And so it is not wrong for Jesus to ask God to reveal to the world the glory that had been masked and set aside. As we read in Paul's letter to the Philippians in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 10. Who being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a man, and, and in the likeness, he became a man, and he, he went even to the cross. Jesus is not asking for something that's unlawful for him to ask for. In fact, Jesus says, since God has granted Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life, in verse 2, we're seeing that Jesus is now introducing something new into the world, that He will be the point of access to eternal life. One commentator writes this about this idea of eternal life in the Jewish mind. Uh, The idea of possessing eternal life in the here and now in John's gospel is so different from the prevailing thought of the day. You see, in that day, eternal life was something to be possessed or attained to in the age to come. But what John's gospel makes clear is that that present age and the age to come, they're collapsed. And in Christ, they become one. He, living flesh, God in flesh, has brought eternity into human existence. And so, when we say we have eternal life as Christians who have confessed our sins against a holy God and have pleaded for the righteousness of Jesus 
and trust that He is sufficient to absolve us and to wash us and cleanse us from every sin. We trust in Him. We are granted eternal life. And that's not just when we die. That's a life that is taking place and taking root right now, today. It's why our spirit is grieved by the sin and injustice in the world. It's why we long to do uh, things for God, to give up our time on a Sunday morning to come and gather with God's people and worship and sing praises of Him. Why we hunger and thirst after righteousness. You see, knowing God is not this, it's not this mental exercise where you know the roster of your favorite sports team. You know what this guy's hitting. If it's baseball, you know what this guy's field goal percentage is. If it's basketball's free throw percentage, you know how many yards he's carried the ball or received the ball. It's not about statistics. Knowing God is so different. It's not about accumulating facts from the Bible. And so now you can be the, the Bible encyclopedia guy. No, knowing God means living in fellowship with Him. And if you want to read a very helpful book, uh, I cannot make a stronger argument for J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It is a great, great book to read. And it's, it's broken up in short chapters. It's got some great questions. It is just so rich about the Christian faith. We've got copies of that in the Missions Cafe And it is a good time to buy books because we're supporting Cornerstone this month. And so, great, great opportunity for you to read a good book this year. In Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25, we're told that God has revealed himself through creation. And that's one of the arguments for this idea that um, man isn't an evolutionary being, but that he was actually made in the image of God. He knows right from wrong. There's innately within our hearts a written law. It's encoded into us. That's the argument that Paul's making in Romans 1 against people who say, there is no God, and therefore anything I can do and anything I want to do is permissible. And yet, what Romans 1 shows us is that although creation testifies, and although our conscience and our innate morality shows us that there is a right and a wrong, it is not enough all on its own to actually tell us who this God is and what He's like. We need something more. And Jesus is saying, I am the answer. I fill in the gap. You want to know who God is? Look at me. Listen to me. Follow me. Obey me, and you will see the character and the personality of God. Jesus goes on that he is the only one who can represent and reveal God, the one true God to the world. We see in the book of Deuteronomy this ancient uh, saying of the Jewish people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is what's called the Shema in the Old Testament. That there's only one true God. And yet Jesus, is, he says this here in John 17. Just as there's only one true God, so there's only one way to get to that God, Jesus says. And it's through him, as we see in verse 6. And now he prays at the end of verse 5 that he would, the Father would glorify the Son in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
You see, in the book of Proverbs, this, this uh, wisdom is personified as a woman. Proverbs 8 speaks of wisdom existing before the foundations of the world were set in place. God used wisdom to create. But in John's gospel, Jesus is described as the pre-existent eternal word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And so we see that in John 1, 1 and verse 14. Not only is he described as the pre-existing word, but he also takes on the idea, the title of the Son of Man, which is an eternal pre-existent figure. We also see that he declares himself to be the I Am, which for Jewish ears would say, you're taking on the name of God that he gave to Moses in Exodus. And you are appropriating that. That's, that's either blasphemy or that's paradigm shifting. And then he says he is the one who came from the Father and is returning to him. These are the things that Jesus prays for. Father, let my life and my death bring you glory. And let that glory be restored to the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the earth. As we look at verse 6 through 19, look at the specific things he prays for the disciples. He prays for their knowledge, their fellowship with God to continue. He intercedes for his followers, and he rehearses his ministry to them in verses 6 through 8. When he speaks about revealing God's name to his disciples, this, this is to say that he's told them all and shown them what God's character is like what his essential nature is like. Because his name is glorious, God wants it to be made known. And Jesus is going to reveal the glory of the whole Father in person, in work, and in words. And this has been a foundation that John's gospel has laid out time and time again. You see, in the Old Testament, God put his name in a place. Remember that? It was first in the tabernacle. That was located in the center of Israel's camp. And then as Israel became a nation in their own land, the city of Jerusalem was built and established. And then a temple there took the place of the tabernacle. And God set his name there in the midst of his people geographically. But in John's gospel, Jesus' revelation of God's name has to be met with obedience. And Jesus is replacing both the tabernacle and the temple. He is the place where God has put his name. And he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. And so here's, here's Jesus saying, Lord, I want you, with my departure, let their relationship with you be so strong that nothing will cause a separation. Just as we sang, He will not forsake me, no, not for a moment. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed for His disciples. The following section, verses 9-19, through 19, is Jesus' prayer. It continues. He prays for their protection in verses 11-16. through 16. Life is going to get hard as a Christian. Do you not know that? I mean, we all know that, right? Christmas has come and gone, the joy and the euphoria of, of giving gifts, of anticipation, of celebrating Christ's birth, and all the family gatherings and those kinds of plans, it's all gone. And what's replaced it? Not to sound a little cynical, but life 
has filled back in, hasn't it? Some of us are still looking towards doctor's appointments. As Joel prayed for Tyler and his family, they're grieving an unexpected and a short sickness that led to his dad's death. And there's life is there and the pressures are real. And here's Jesus saying, Father, protect them from these pressures. In verse 11, I, I've kept them all. I've, I've not lost anyone except for Judas, this son of destruction. And that was to fulfill Scripture which said, uh, one of those who broke bread with me will betray me. One who is in my midst has betrayed me. But now that I'm coming to you, he says, I'm praying that you would keep them in your word. I'm not asking you in verse 16 or 15 to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. God is interceding for you today, Christian. He's praying that your faith would not be destroyed because of the circumstances of your suffering or the challenges and the hardships of this life. Jesus goes on, not, those, not only does he pray that God would protect his disciples, but for their consecration for his service. In verses 17 through 19, I, he says, Lord, I, I've sanctified myself. I've consecrated myself so that I could be a living sacrifice for them. And I'm asking you to sanctify them in your truth. And what is truth? It is God's word, verse 17. And so he's sending out his disciples into a world that will be hostile to the gospel, hostile to them because they are identified as Jesus' followers. And Jesus is praying that they would live holy and consecrated lives. A holiness that's ascribed to God. That there would be no distance in relationship between them and their father. In verses uh, in verse 18, Jesus commissions the disciples. Just as he was set apart and sent into the world, so the disciples are now set apart to be sent into the world. And Jesus' relationship with the Father, that pattern of communion, of fellowship, of obedience, of trust, that relationship that Jesus walked out in front of them is to be the way they understand their new relationship with God. It's the way they are to live. As a priest, to the Most High God as witnesses to Him. So as we look at this third question, answering the question of what does Jesus ask for Himself? It's that He would be glorified in order to turn that glory back to the Lord. He prays for His disciples that they would be protected, that they would be committed to the Word, that they would walk in fellowship with the Lord, that they would be consecrated and holy, they would be obedient, that God would watch over them as they go out into the world, that they would be faithful to the mission. And now He prays for those of us today. And we see He prays a few things. He prays for faith in verses 20 through 26, that we would believe the written word of people whose lives and voices we've never heard or seen. That we, we would believe the testimony of the scriptures that have been passed down over the centuries about Jesus. A story often gets distorted and it gets inflated, it gets subtracted from, details are added to it, but that is not the nature of the scriptures. But it requires faith. He prays, secondly, that there would be unity with God and with one another in verses 21 through 23. 
that they would be one as we are one. That the glory you have given me and I have given to them would be in, uh, that they may be one even as we are one in verse 22. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus does not want the mission to fail because the disciples turn on one another or get frustrated with one another. They get scared and they run home. They hide in holes. They stop speaking or they distort the truth to create a platform for themselves. He wants to see faith and unity. And there would be unity. There would be love between Jesus' followers. The vision is of a unified people of God that was expressed back in John chapter 10 of one flock and one shepherd. And so Jesus is gathering the scattered children of God into one. And the believer's unity, our unity as a church, is not based on the fact that some of us don't want to raise our heads up and speak out when we don't like what we see or hear. Our unity isn't because someone is big enough and strong enough to force all the rest of us to follow them. Our unity isn't for the sake of unity in itself. Our unity fundamentally starts with our relationship with God. And because He first loved us, we love Him. And because we love Him, we love those whom He loves. And so we have a fellowship with one another. We overlook our differences, our peculiarities, because we love one another. Why do we love one another? Is it because you've all done great things for each other, and so now you're kind of on the hook? No, we love each other because we share Christ. And as an expression of that, on behalf of the staff, let me just say thank you very much, South Canyon, for your generosity towards us in a Christmas offering. It's a wonderful expression of your appreciation, and it's humbling. It really is. And we thank you for caring well for us as staff here at this church. And yet, our love for one another isn't just tied to a dollar bill or tied to sitting next to one another in a pew. It's, it's the day in, the day out, the hard work of living life together, right? It's caring for one another when you're going through hardships. And so we praise God for His answered prayer. Then, in verse 24, notice this. Jesus says, O Lord, righteous Father, even though... Uh, sorry, that's verse 25. <clears throat> verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You know, I think what Jesus is praying for here is that there will be a day where all who confess faith in Christ will see Jesus as He is and be with Him forever. It's the certainty of heaven. Not the hope and wishfulness, but the certainty of heaven that Jesus is praying for. That we would see Him. I mean, some of the disciples, three of them in particular, were able to sit with Jesus on the top of the mountain at His transfiguration. And the writers of the Gospels, they tell us that His clothes changed with such thing that it was so bright that no one could have bleached them. Mr. Clean, OxyClean, couldn't have got them that bright and white. Jesus' own flesh 
was glowing and shining. It was the Shekinah glory of God that touched Moses in the Old Testament when he was with God so that he had to cover his face because he looked like a giant glow stick and it freaked everybody out when he came down from the mountain. This is what happened to Jesus. And John is telling us Jesus has prayed that there would be a day where, when the, the disguise of just simple manhood, the carpenter's son, would be peeled away and that you and I will stand with Christ beside him at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will see him in all his glory. And like the hymn says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Here's the other thing that Jesus prays for in verse 26. It's sanctification and love of God. This is what he's praying for us, that we would believe, that we would demonstrate a unity with God and with one another, that we would have the hope of heaven, and that we would be sanctified in our love for God. Look at verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God's Son is praying for your growth in godliness. He's praying for your sanctification. He's praying for your ability to say no to the temptations of the flesh and say yes to Christ. For your ability to get over that uncomfortableness of talking to someone who you don't know, but you see at church on a regular basis and say, hey, here's who I am. What's your name? Um, can we sit down and have a conversation about the word? Can we read a good Christian book together? Can we talk about spiritual things together? I'm looking for a friend. What, what can we learn and grow in together? All these questions lead us to our fourth and final one. We've looked at who Jesus is praying to, who Jesus is praying for, and what Jesus is asking for. And now, what do we learn about him and ourselves? Well, in verses 2 through 5, we learn that Jesus is the only one who knows the Father, and therefore, he's the only one who can reveal the Father. He has a unique place, not just in human history, but in all of eternity. And we learn in verses 6 through 8 that believing in Jesus is actually a gift from God. It is not something that any preacher can coerce out of somebody. It's not any friend can strong arm another friend into agreeing to have faith in Jesus. You can say the words, but real faith is a gift from God. And we see in verses 9 and 14 that not all will believe in Jesus. Not all will be moved out of the world into the kingdom. Some will remain in the world because they hate the Father and His Son and His followers. We learn, here's what we learn about ourselves. We need the eternal life that comes through the one who consecrated Himself to sanctify sinners. We see that in verses 2 and 3 and verse 19. We see that Jesus is this eternal, pre-existent relationship with the Father. That's the reason He can pray for us. He has an access that you and I could never get, and He uses that access to pray for us. We see that we have a Savior who is gracious, who is merciful, who is tender and patient. He knows all of the problems that you and I are dealing with, and that is why He prayed these prayers. 
That's why we as elders pray for this congregation. We pray not just for healing, not just for a new job when one is lost, not just for sickness and good health, but we pray that you would grow more and more in your knowledge of Christ and that your fruitfulness in Christ would be demonstrated as you witness to him in this city. That God would use you for the sake of the kingdom. That you would be bold to share Christ where you work. That you would not shrink back from an opportunity to give an answer from the scriptures of the hope that's within you. Jesus makes claims that would sound blasphemous to Jewish ears. And yet we who have come this far in John's gospel are not surprised at all to hear Jesus call his father righteous. The Old Testament says that God alone is just just and righteous. And this is going to take some added significance to the circumstances surrounding Jesus' confession. Because if you remember, I said just a few moments ago, like 25 minutes ago, that Jesus in chapter 18 is going to go to the cross. And so if Jesus is claiming to be divine, and then he's killed the next day, wouldn't that be a stronger argument that Jesus' claims to divinity are actually false and that the sovereign God who does not like people to take on his language and his titles and his name actually allowed Jesus to be destroyed for his blasphemy? Initially, it might appear to the Jewish reader, John's reader, remember he is writing to Jews who don't yet believe in Christ, but have heard all the stories, and now it's decades after Jesus has gone to heaven, and they're living all over the Roman Empire, scattered and driven out of Jerusalem because of so many Jewish rebellions that the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And he is writing to evangelize these Jews. They want, he wants them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They might have missed him, but it's still not too late to believe in him. These guys, having read this, they would think, well, John, this proves that Jesus was a heretic. God, in his righteous judgment, used these Roman and Jewish leaders to destroy this blasphemer. But yet that theory can only last until they get to chapter 20. Because there, the resurrection takes place. And how could you interpret the resurrection? If the sovereign, righteous, and holy God killed Jesus, then how in the world was Jesus raised, and what does that mean for us? And that question is answered in the gospel. Because, in fact, God did judge Jesus. God destroyed Jesus. He poured out his wrath upon Jesus. But it wasn't because of anything Jesus had done to deserve it. It was because Jesus took on our punishment. He took on our sin, our guilt, not his. Before the foundations of the world were laid, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit determined to redeem sinners. And how would God do this without compromising his justness, his righteousness? He would do it by setting forth a perfect one to whom guilt could be put on. Because sinners cannot atone for sin. They've already broken it. You got one chance, and we've all failed it. And so until a holy one, a better one comes along, we're stuck. And the Godhead solved this sin problem by putting the guilt on Jesus, who would drink the full cup of God's wrath 
He lived this consecrated life in order to lay it down as an atonement for us. So that all who believe in him, that God had sent him into the world for this divine mission, would be given eternal life. Now we can't be assured, or we can be assured, that this is the only correct explanation for Jesus' death. It's certified as such by his resurrection. Because if Jesus were a criminal deserving of death, then what explains his resurrection? Then that means that there is something more powerful than God out there. And that's not the case. The resurrection is proof that Jesus' death can only be understood in the light of Scripture and not culture. Not religion, not conspiracy theories that his body was stolen, but the scripture itself lays the trail of breadcrumbs that lead us to understand that Jesus always knew where his end would be. And ironically enough, the end wasn't the cross, but it was eternity. When he is gathered for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and language, and he has brought them to the Father so that they may live forever in his glory. Genesis through Revelation, it all points forward to or looks back on the cross as that one crowning achievement of Jesus' perfect obedience, which purchased a full and complete pardon for all who trust in him. Friend, this is the plea that we make. Put your faith in Christ. There is other days, there are other plans, but you need to understand not one of us is promised another moment, not another breath. Today is a day of salvation. This is the word that's come to us. And all this can be seen by Jesus' covenantal words at the end of verse 26, where he prays to be in us. God is not a remote, detached, uninterested deity who's kind of spun the world like a top and then walks away not concerned about it at all. His whole purpose in sending his son is so that Christ would be in you, the hope of glory. That you would be given eternal life. Not hidden away in a tabernacle or in a temple, a a place where the priest could only enter once a year and under all kinds of protocols, but here in our midst, he is tabernacling, dwelling in the midst of his people. From Jesus, we learn, from his prayer, we learn that we can trust the eternal Son of God because he knows exactly what we need in this world. He's prayed these prayers for the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, and for the good of us. And so how should we respond this morning? I think we should respond with thanksgiving. I think we should sing of Christ who is our hope in life and in death. And in the life to come. And so let's pray. And then I'm going to invite you to stand and as the worship team comes up and leads us in our closing song, Christ, our hope in life and death, may you be able to sing these words with a full and glad heart. You know, when we clap at the end of a song, it's, it's not for the musician's sake. It's, it's because we are celebrating our great and good God. 
And you may not have a clue what's going to happen this year, but looking at John 17, you have a path of hope laid out before you. That whole yellow brick road analogy from the Wizard of Oz, I mean, you look at John 17, you can see what Jesus has already prayed for your year and find hope in that. That your faith would be stronger, that you would, God would protect you from the evil one, that he would grow you and use you, that you will see Jesus in all his glory. I mean, this is our future. This is our present. How can we not praise him for it? Lord, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for your wisdom to speak and to pray in such a way that it transcends time. We thank you that you are a God who answers prayer. And not just the prayers of Jesus, but even the prayers of sinful people like us. You lead us to confess our sin and unworthiness and your holiness and goodness. And so I pray this morning, Lord, we do pray that men and women and children would believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That you would grant them eternal life based on the spirits prompting them to confess these things. May we help them on to Christ. And for those of us who are Christians, may our joy over you grow more and more as we see your good and wise providence. And we ask, Lord, that we would hold fast to you our hope in life and death. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. And if you have questions, I'd be happy to talk with you. I'll be right out these doors after the service. Uh, Come by and and, uh, let's have a conversation.